0: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians. And each week we explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. Last month, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened in Montgomery, Alabama. The memorial is dedicated to the thousands of African-Americans who were lynched between 1877 and 1950. At the center of the museum is a walkway with 800 steel columns, each inscribed with the name of an American county and who was lynched there. The columns hang from the ceiling, reminding visitors of bodies strung up in trees. Today on the show, we're going to talk about how we as Americans remember and reckon with systematic violence. How do we keep this difficult history alive and in the public eye? Later, we'll take a trip to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. to hear about how Americans reacted to the Holocaust. But first, we're going to hear from historian Kadada Williams. She studies racial violence targeting African Americans, including the wave of lynching that began in the aftermath of the Civil War. Over the course of her research, she's come across many accounts of lynchings. Now, these were not secret crimes. Often, accounts of lynching would be published not only in local papers, but in national outlets like the New York Times. And while these accounts can give details on what happened the day of the lynching, they are not usually sympathetic to the victim. Davisboro, Georgia, May 18th. Charles Atkins, a Negro, 15 years old one of four taken into custody today in connection with the killing of Mrs. Elizabeth Kitchens, 20 years old, was burned at the stake tonight. The lynching occurred at the scene of the murder and followed an alleged confession from the 15-year-old prisoner. He was tortured over a slow fire for 15 minutes, and then, shrieking with pain, was questioned concerning his accomplices. Members of the mob, comprising nearly 2,000 people, then raised the body again, fastened it to a pine tree with trace chains, and relighted the fire. More than 200 shots were fired into the charred body following the boy's death. Looking in the archives of the NAACP, Williams came across some extraordinary documents concerning this lynching. Letters from the family of Charlie Atkins. Letters which tell a very different story of his death and of its aftermath.
1: My dear Mr. White, this, this is, is to, to acknowledge, acknowledge and say, say that, that I received your, your very much, much appreciated letter. letter. I wish, I wish to say here the, here, purpose, the purpose for of my writing, writing you
2: was I am looking I'm around for a good you. lawyer to bring suit against the state of Georgia for the lynching of my son at the age of 13 years old on the year 1922, 18th day of May. And I'm sending to you for information. The fact, the crowd tied a rope around my neck and also tied me to a stump. And be my wife almost to death. She has not been well from that time, and they kept me in jail for 21 months and my wife in jail for seven months. I'm now looking forward to bringing the matter to the state court just as soon as possible, or as soon as I can get some good lawyer to take the case up. I'm getting old and miss the support of my family, and feel that the state should help me to bury this burden. Thanking you for what you has done for me and what you are going to do. I wish to have a favorable answer soon. Respectfully yours, Gaynor Atkins.
1: When African Americans wrote the Department of Justice or when they wrote the President of the United States, they often got a form letter back saying, this is an issue that should be taken up with your state government. What's curious is that a number of African-Americans get that form letter and they actually write back and say, I went to my state government first and they did nothing. You could also uh, imagine him potentially writing to the local newspapers, but that would be less likely to occur because newspapers, especially the local ones where lynchings occurred, assume the guilt of the person who's been lynched and don't really press down on the fact that even if they had committed the crime, that they were still entitled to due process and equal protection under the law. They take the story that the mob crafts to justify the killings. And so if he writes out, that could be seen as a direct act of defiance. And there's nothing to stop the newspaper from publishing the letter, including his address where he is, and putting a bullseye on his back. The NAACP, Has up to this point positioned itself as an ally. They're going to investigate lynchings themselves. They're trying to get the family story out about the killings. So he's writing to the NAACP because he's hoping that they can help him get justice for himself and for his son.
2: July 16th, 1926. 209 Taylor Street, Camden, New Jersey. Dear sirs, I wrote you some time ago concerning what happened to me. Now I will tell you the facts in this case to the very best of my knowledge. In May 1922 in Washington County, state of Georgia, my boy was lynched for killing a white woman that was carrying U.S. mail to Davisboro, Georgia. My boy was 13 years old at the time. His name was Charlie Atkins, He was lynched without any investigation by the people of Washington and Johnson counties. And myself and my wife was beat near to death because it was said that my boy did the killing. And it was said shortly after this happened that a white man killed the woman and gave my boy her auto to make it appear that my boy did the killing since my boy knew no better than to let this man give him this auto. Now this is all for this time. Please let me hear from you by return mail, as I would very much like to hear from you as quick as possible. Yours truly, Gaynor Atkins.
1: Both of the letters are written longhand. The handwriting is actually very neat. Probably doesn't have the fine literacy skills that, you know, some of our listeners might enjoy today. But even without that, you still get a sense of who he was as a person. And I can imagine him as a grieving father who's been beaten, who's been imprisoned, who's left his home community in order to be safe, trying to do something, to trying to have meaning in his life by getting a degree of justice for himself and his son. And so that I feel on the page when I interact with the letter. On July 26th, 1926, Walter White, Assistant Secretary from the NAACP, wrote Gaynor Atkins back. My dear Mr. Atkins, I have your letter of the 16th relative to the lynching of your son. I am taking the matter up with well-informed people in Georgia. I will keep you advised of all developments. Yours very truly, Walter White. I don't believe I have his initial response. Gaynor's letters refer to earlier correspondence with Walter White and receiving information from him. For the letter that I shared with you all, there's only the little bit that I just read. But what often happens with the first response, it is an expression of condolence, a hope to do what they can to help the family get justice, if that is at all possible. Now, the challenge is that in the 1920s, the NAACP, You know, they're running out of fuel. They haven't been able to get federal anti-lynching legislation passed. And they're also beginning the slow process of trying to branch out beyond lynching and take up segregation and education and other places of public accommodations. So part of what they're able to do at this point is to try to apply some pressure to the governor to try to shame the state into taking some action because that's their only recourse at this point. I don't think that people like Gain or Atkins know that that's the situation, the internal situation of the NAACP at this point. All he knows is that they've thrown him a lifeline. With lynching victims, families, they feel as though they don't have anything else to lose but to ask and ask and ask and ask and ask for more, something to get them closer. On September 7th, 1926, Gaynor-Atkins wrote another letter to Walter White. I wrote wrote Mr. Mr. Alexander Alexander concerning concerning the case as you
2: directed directed me me to do, but I did not get very much satisfaction out of his letter, so I thought I would write to you again to see if you would write the High Sheriff of Washington County, Georgia, and also my lawyer, whose address is Sandersville, Georgia, Washington County. See if you can get any information from them concerning this case. I'm getting older now and feels the need of my child, and also the time that these people cause me to lose and suffer. So, I want to ask you to do all that you can for me. In good many ways, this burdens my heart, so do all you can for me. The loss of my child is worse than all this. I want to consult the government concerning the matter, and I want to ask you to direct me as to just how to get at the matter. My lawyer, Mr. Evans, is the man that cleared myself and my wife of this crime. But my child is gone. He suffered death. My wife suffered for a long time also. And also myself. So answer soon. Respectfully yours, Gaynor
1: Atkins. What stands out in the letter is Gaynor Atkins' palpable Grief and agony at losing his boy. It's obvious that he's deeply affected by the killing and his beating and his imprisonment. And I think that for me, what the letter does, is it connects Charles, or Charlie, as his family called him, to community. It says that even though he was isolated from his people at the time of his death, that he was fully human, that he was part of a family that grieved his death long after it occurred. And for me, I think that that's really important because it shows a very different side of lynching that we don't get when we look at the newspapers. And if I can, I'll also connect that to part of what we're seeing with the new Legacy Museum down in Montgomery. One of the things that they've been able to do is to do something historians haven't done, which is connect directly to families. And their publications and the documentaries that they're working on, and even in the museum itself, they are bringing the story of lynching victims' families, lynching victims' connectedness to communities to light. It's letters like Gainers that, at least for me, caused a course correction in the nature of my research. The writing that I did on lynching was distant and personal. It was discovering Gaynor's letter that changed that because I now saw Charlie. I had to ground them. I had to ground those victims, connect those victims to their people because that's how they were in life as letters like Gaynor's really reveals to me.
0: Kodata Williams is a historian at Wayne State University and author of They Left Great Marks on Me, African-American Testimonies of Racial Violence from Emancipation to World War I.